Good morning, everybody. I'm excited. Um, I want to share some some thoughts this morning about a uh, teaching that's commonly held out in the church worldwide. We've we've addressed this before in the main meeting. I did this in in March of 2010. I was looking back at the at the website. Uh, March of 2010, we did this message, and then we've done it here uh, here a few times. But I think it, it deserves repeating because it's, uh, some, some have maybe never heard what we shared last time about this message for the, in the first place. But it's just really important that, that we really get this because it's a, it's a big part of the teaching that's out there in the church today. And um, it can eat away at the, at the revelation of God's grace and God's love. And it can um, just basically put you back under law. Um, if you don't see what's really the issues out there on this topic. And the topic is this topic about the Christian standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we've, you know, we've addressed it before, but I've never, com- I've never combined the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 3 talking about the, um, you know, passing through the fire and the loss of rewards and because that's generally how they teach this. They go to 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 3, and talk about that passage. And they combine it with 2 Corinthians 5 and talk about the judgment seat of Christ. As if Paul is thinking the same thought, and he's not. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, so, um, that's what's on my heart just to share and to sort out some issues here. Because if you have in your thinking that... As a believer, not, not for salvation, not for being saved, not for going to heaven, but if you think in your, in your mind that you're going to stand before Jesus one day as a believer, as a Christian, if you, if you have in your thinking you're going to stand before God and God's going to judge your works, that's affecting your Christian life, whether you know it or not, um, because that's not truth. It's not the truth. There is no judgment for the Christian, period. Jesus said, he who believes on me shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death and into life. Hebrews says that people on earth have lived all their lives in fear of judgment because of the enemy accusing them of their sins and their weaknesses and their failures. All their lives in fear of judgment. Jesus came, Hebrews says, to render him powerless who had the power of death so that men would no longer have to live in fear who believe on him. For now the bride eagerly awaits him, Hebrew says, eagerly awaits him without fear. So if you feel like you're going to be examined by the Lord, if you feel like he's going to examine you when you go to heaven and you're going to be put on the spot. I mean, there's, there's little chick publications out there that you can read where it says, this is my life. And it's widely taught out there in, the Christ, in Christian circles that the believer, the believer will stand before God and God will show a replay of that whole Christian's life and show what he did right and what he did wrong. And that's out there. It's not only out there, it's in the minds of many believers. It's not the truth. It stifles the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is this incredible, scandalous grace that has been lavished upon us. So much so that God has said, 
I see no spot in you and no wrinkle in you or any such thing. Why? Because of the value he places on the death of his son. Jesus took all our sin, all our sin before we were a Christian and all our sin after we were a Christian. All our sin, past, present, future. So it's, there, is no, there is no judgment, period, for the Christian, which is the awesome good news that lets us live the rest of our life on earth free from fear. For perfect love or an unconditional love has cast out all fear. I think I can show you from Scripture, if, if you'll open your heart and mind to what I'm going to show you in Scripture, I think I'll show you some things by the Spirit of God that might release you even deeper into this grace, into this awareness of His love and His awesome work that He accomplished for us. There is no fine print in this new covenant. There is no fine print that says, well, you know, you're not going to be judged for heaven or hell because you believed on the Son, but get ready for the inspection of the sheep. And it's not going to be fun, so you better get your life in order. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that's out there. And, um, and it's wrong. And it's hurting the sheep, and it's not truth. And truth sets you free, and error will lead you into bondage. And that's what I want to talk about today, is what, what is this thing that happens after death for the believer? I mean, is, is, is it really a judgment for the believer's works? Is that true? Or is that not true? They both can't be true. It's either one or the other. Okay, let's take a look at that. Um, and let's just look to the Lord right now. Just say, Lord, we just, there's no way we can see these things without the Spirit of God. Who can know the thoughts of God but the Spirit of God? Lord, your word is like a sword that cuts cuts through the traditions of men and the false teachings of men and the wrong teachings of the church by well-meaning people. They mean well. They've been taught this in seminary and they continue to teach others. But what does the scripture really say about the believer and about judgment? Lord, help us see these things from the scriptures. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see just how good you are just how powerful this work was on the cross. For we were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And some will bear 30-fold fruit, and some will bear 60-fold fruit, and some will bear 100-fold fruit. But they all are righteous in Christ with no blame and no fault. Amen. Let's just jump right into uh, the two passages I want to focus on are 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. These are the two passages that are commonly combined together to teach that the believer stand, is to stand one day before the Lord and give an account of what he's done in his life um, and a judgment of, of the works of the believer. That's what it's commonly what is commonly said. So, Second Corinthians chapter five. See what you mean. I'm, I'm borrowing Pam's glasses, and it's like I look up, and it doesn't do anything. And then, oh yeah. Second Corinthians uh, chapter five and First Corinthians chapter three. 
Okay. Before we read these passages, let me just give a little quick summary of of the two, and then you'll see it for yourselves as, as we read it. But first, well, let me say this. The teaching that says the believer has to stand or will stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of their works uh, goes something like this. It says, just to summarize, it says that um, a person is saved by grace through faith in what Jesus did. So it's not a matter of the believer being judged for salvation or whether they're going to go to heaven or not. But the teaching is common out there that the believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what they've done in the body and be judged for their works to determine whether they get rewards or not. Um, it will be kind of an inspection thing of the, of the sheep, you know, inspecting them for their faults and where they, where they failed and where they did not fail and where they produced and where they did not produce and so forth. And it's portrayed as not a, not a, not a fun time. Some are worse than others in the way they pro- proclaim this, this teaching. Some are really bad, and they really make it sound like, well, just sounds like a, it's, you know, it sounds like the same thing uh, as if I was not saved. I mean, you're to make it sound like this is a dreadful, fearful thing. So some on that end of the spectrum make it really, really bad. And then the others that soft-pedal it, um, and they pretty much say, you know, they emphasize this is not for salvation, you know, God loves you, but you will be, you know, judged for your works and so forth. And, you know, you don't want to disappoint the Lord, and you don't want to be in a situation where your, your life is exposed to everybody and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it determines how big your mansion is going to be in heaven, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that's out there. That's out there. You know, big mansion, little mansion, log cabin. Some people say, you know, I don't, if I just get to heaven, I don't care if I'm in a log cabin. You know, just, if I can just make it, you know, silly stuff like that is what. Um, so this is, this is the general teaching that's out there. And it is, a, it is a fly in the ointment. The scripture talks about a fly in the ointment. You know what that means? It means that you have this beautiful thing of oil and, and then a fly lands in it and you go, oh, great. It's like getting a beautiful bowl of soup at the restaurant and a fly lands in it. Well, this teaching about the judgment seat of Christ is like a fly in the ointment of the revelation of the awesomeness of God's grace and the finished work of his son. And once you see this in scripture, you may get mad at how you've been duped um and then after you get over being mad then help help others see it and encourage other people in the faith okay let me say this um what's behind this what's behind this teaching what's behind this well first of all i believe it's well-meaning people that are teaching it it's not like they're deviously trying to put you and i in bondage they mean well they 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 have been taught many times by others in seminary this teaching and they just have continued it. Uh, the Reformed, Reformed uh, theology endorses this teaching. Uh, Calvinists teach it. The Baptists teach it. Um, it's, it's widespread. Assembly of God teach it. I mean, it's, it's widespread in the church, this idea that the Christian's going to stand in judgment for their works. Okay. What's, what's behind it? I think part of what's behind it is, uh, because think about this now, saints, the same people that are teaching this teaching about the judgment seat of Christ are the same people that teach 1 John 1, 9 teaches that you have to confess your sins every day to stay right with God. The same people that teach the judgment seat of Christ teaching 
All the same people that teach that every time you sin as a believer, you need to confess that sin so that God will cleanse you of that sin again and get you back right with God and that you're out of fellowship with God is when you sin and you haven't confessed that sin, but the moment you confess the sin and ask for forgiveness and cleansing, then you're back in fellowship with God. So that should be a huge red flag right there that the the same people that teach that, that we now know is not truth, not the truth at all. 1 John 1, 9 does not teach that at all. 1 John 1, 9 teaches that that adverse is to an unbeliever, an unbeliever who says he has no sin, he has not sinned, he doesn't need a savior. John is simply writing to that one who is deceived. This is the four things he describes about that person. He's deceived, the truth is not in him, the word is not in him, and he is, what's the fourth? Liar. He's called God a liar. Those four things. He's not describing a believer. He's saying a person who says he has no sin and he doesn't need a savior, he's deceived because he has sin. He needs a savior. He doesn't have the truth in him. He's not born again. He doesn't have uh, the word in him, doesn't have the revelation of God's truth. And he's, ca- he's calling God a liar because he's, God is saying we are sinners and we need a savior. Same phrase John uses in chapter 5 of 1 John when he says, for those who don't believe on the Son of God has called God a liar. So it's the same, same phrase, and he's clearly in chapter 5 of 1 John referring to an unbeliever. He who, has, who had, has not believed on the Son of God has called God a liar or made God a liar. So it's the same phrase. So it's obvious that 1 John 1, 9 is not talking about a believer but an unbeliever who needs to simply believe because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we become a believer. And he doesn't do it all again and all again and all again and all again as we commit sins as a Christian day to day and confess those sins and get back right with God. We've been through all that. But I just make that point to say the same people that believe that the Christian life is this is this roller coaster ride of staying right with God and staying in fellowship with God and getting in fellowship and out of fellowship are the same people that teach this teaching on the judgment seat of Christ. So what's behind it? What's behind it? Well, I think part of what's behind it is that um, theologians are, you know, sad to say, but a lot of preachers and teachers are really in the business of sin management. They're, they're, they're in the business of sin management because they have failed to see this cataclysmic work of God that is not of man, that is not of this world, that is not of religion, that has nothing to do with managing sin, but has everything to do with a termination, a termination of the human race and a raising of a whole new creation in union with God himself. It, is, it blows religion out of the water. It is religion cannot touch this reality. And that's the gospel. The good news is that through Jesus' death, we have actually passed through judgment and into life. We have actually passed through judgment and into life. And we are now in union with him. And as he is, so are we in this world, John says. As he is righteous, so are we in this world because of him, not because of us. In union with him, we are as he is. In union with him, as he is, so are we in this world. As righteous as Christ himself is righteous and is as as scandalous as that sounds, it's God's idea. It's God's idea to give us righteousness. For he who has received this gift of righteousness and this abundant grace shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. He confounds the wise, reveals himself to the foolish. 
He reveals himself to the weak and hides himself from the proud and the strong. For so it seemed good in thy sight, Father, Jesus said, to reveal yourself to the babes, to those who are childlike. It seemed good in thy sight, Father, to hide yourself from those who think they have it all figured out, who think they are righteous in themselves, who think they can obey God and get brownie points and don't see a righteousness which is by faith. For the Jews sought a righteousness by their obedience to commandments and did not find it and stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Christ. But the Gentiles who were not looking for righteousness found it because they heard the good news and simply believed. Awesome. And anything, anything that taints this awesome message, any fly in the ointment, God has commissioned me to blast it out of the water. You want to know what my purpose on this earth is, I believe? God has commissioned me to explain his gospel and has commissioned me to take every fly that man has placed in this awesome bowl of beautiful oil and blast it out of there with confidence and with the scriptures and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of this ministry is clearly seen in red by all men. I need no commendation by men to other men. As Paul said, and I don't say that in an arrogant way, but I'm saying that the fruit of those who hear and see will testify that once I thought God loved me and didn't love me and loved me and didn't love me, now I know he's in love with me. And the fruit from their lives... The ability to forgive others. The ability to walk in mercy toward others, which is a huge fruit of the Spirit. You talk to some legalists, man, they're so bound up with bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred and anger. Why? Why? Because they have left the true gospel. They have mixed it. And a little leaven leavens the the whole lump. A little leaven of law leavens the whole lump. And they become bitter people and angry people and they... They, uh, they, as Paul says in Galatians, they bite and devour one another, missing the, the heart of God. Jesus said they even will, some will even try to kill you because they think they're doing God's service. They think they're serving God. But they do that because they know not me nor my Father. So this is important. I mean, this is what I'm, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to help explain the gospel and to take all these pieces that have been um, taken out of place with God's help so that we can see clearly the simplicity of Christ, that simply to live is Christ. And he's done it. He's done it, and he's done it well. And there's no fine print in his covenant. When he says, I will be merciful to all your iniquities, I'll remember your sin no more, he means it. There's no fine print. When he says, he who believes on me shall not come into judgment, There's no fine print that says, except for the judgment seat of Christ for the works of the believers. No. No judgment. And it's just like God, because he's a a God of a certain sound. The scripture says, who who will prepare for battle if you have this uncertain sound? He's a God of a certain sound. He's very clear. This has been a secret that he's had hidden inside himself, Paul said, since the beginning of time. Since before the world was made. 
The secret. Paul said a secret was hidden in God, not revealed to the sons of men till Christ came. This secret is so awesome, so profound. Do you think that this secret's got some kind of condition, a small print, some kind of fly in the ointment, some kind of... No. Listen, this is something he didn't even tell the angels. The angels long to look into what you and I have. This thing is so awesome, it, it totally totally nukes this whole world. It nukes religion. It nukes the natural way of looking at things. It is totally foreign to man. It is of God. It is from heaven. And it is the power of the gospel that will change you and me and change the world. And religion doesn't get it. And they never will. Okay. Let's look at this. Um, Okay, so what? Oh, yeah. Fear management. What's, reason, what's, the, what's behind this? Behind this, I think, is a, is a desire to, to an attempt, not a, not a desire, but an attempt to bring fear back into the equation. The scripture says perfect love has cast out all fear. Again, no fine print, except, footnote, except for the fear, for the judgment seat of Christ. So keep your life in order. No, all fear, no, no fine print. Perfect love has cast out all fear. You and I can come boldly to a throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. Boldly. If there was any hint that there was any issue between you and God, you don't go boldly. You don't go boldly. I mean, one little spot and you could be toast in his presence. But because of the work of Christ, it's so powerful. It's so powerful that you can come boldly. I can come boldly to a throne of what? Judgment? No, a throne of grace. To find what? Discipline, instruction, to find help and mercy in time of need. That's our God. He did it. He did it. My sons and my daughters, I have put the spirit of my son in you that cries, Abba, Papa, Papa, come to me, Papa. Cry, Abba. Cry, Papa. Come to me. Run to me. Come boldly into my presence. I've done it. I've removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. It shall never again be counted against you. Your high priest is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By my own mouth, I swear, I swear, I swear by my own self, he is your high priest forever. No sin will ever be held against you again, and he lives forever. He is your high priest after the power of an endless life. I love that. God swears to us that they who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement. They who have fled for refuge in me might have strong encouragement. No hint, no hint, no hint, no hint, no hint of any judgment of the works of the believer at all. It's awesome. Ah. I tell you, God, this is God speaking. The Lord himself is trying to convince his sheep, his church. This is going on the website. This is going around the world. You know, we have people in Singapore listening to our messages and in England and Canada and in Croatia and in Africa. I mean, we have, it's a, I get a report once a month from Daniel. It's awesome. People, this, is, this is not just us, but the word of his finished work is going out all over the world, changing teachers, changing preachers, changing believers, because it's truth. Joseph Prince is out there doing an awesome job proclaiming the finished work of Christ in all these countries on television. It's awesome. Steve McVeigh is writing books, 
uh, gosh, Bob George, uh, who wrote uh, The Naked Gospel? Andrew Farley, awesome. He's got a new book out called God Without Religion. Awesome. Books are going out. Words, testimony. It is the latter rain about to fall. Before the latter rain falls, the word must be proclaimed. If you'll notice in the book of Acts, the spirit just didn't fall on the people as a result of prayer. Prayer is important to prepare the hearts and to bring the revelation. But in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God was not poured out on the cities until a man was sent to speak words. The angels had to come get Peter to go to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, and the Spirit prepared the people, and the angel said, send for a man who has words for you. Words. And he came and he opened his mouth and spoke this revelation of the finished work of the Christ. And he said, whosoever believes on this man shall receive forgiveness for all their sins. And then the next verse says, and when he said those words, words, the Spirit of God fell upon them. Because they believed. They were ready. They believed. It's awesome. So what's happening right now, saints, in the world? I'll tell you what's happening right now in the world. There is a pure gospel going forth from all corners of the the globe. There is a pure gospel. Jesus said the good news of the kingdom of heaven must be preached in all the world before the end comes. The the true gospel of the kingdom of the other realm, the reality in God that we have in Christ, this other reality in the kingdom that is now inside of you in the spirit, righteousness, peace, and joy in him must be proclaimed in all the world before the end can come. And then he says, and then the end shall come. So what's happening is this word of God's grace, of pure grace, of Clark, Clark Whitten's new book, Pure Grace, Clark's message is going out. All these messages are going out, and it's, going to, it's spreading around the globe. And what's happening is that people are receiving, and the Spirit of God is bearing witness to the believer and returning them to their first love, and their life is like, oh, my God, I feel like I've been born again again. I've heard that so many times. It's so cool. I, I love hearing that from other believers that say, wow, I feel like I've been born again again. Throwing off the shackles of the law that, that religion has put on us. And then unbelievers are hearing it for the first time. And thank God they don't have to go through all the stuff we had to go through to, to, to get rid of the baggage of legalism so we could see grace. They're just hearing it like the Gentiles did and receiving it, and they're like just going ballistic. Ballistic in love with God. And the Spirit is moving, moving, moving. It's awesome. It's so cool. Do you bear witness with that? Yes. Awesome. It's so cool. It's right there in the spirit of the, of the bride. It's right there. Okay. Um, so fear is a motivation I think that some people have in trying to p- promote this. And then you also have, I think, I think another motivation is the natural fleshly man that still wants a pat on the back. Still wants to know that I'm going to get more than he because I, I do more than he. I do more than that guy. I, I'm going to get more than so-and-so down the street because he, they call themselves a Christian, but I'm dedicated. They're not. And uh, by George, there better be a system where I get more than him because that's, I mean, I, you know, I believe in grace too, but, you know, I better, I better have more in my mansion than him. It's, it's part of the natural, fleshly, prideful man that can't let go of self-righteousness. And that's another reason why it's, 
it's received a lot in the church because these people that are scared to death of grace find something to hold on to. Oh, good. You mean if I work hard, I can get something from God, you know? No. All our works are as filthy rags. And when we do have any good works, it's him, not us. For it's Christ in us who lives through us. And yes, we will bear fruit, some 30-fold, Jesus said, some 60-fold, some 100-fold fruit. But he loves his entire orchard. Orchard. He, he loves all the trees. The sheep are not going to be inspected. Only one lamb was inspected. As Clark preaches that message about the lamb, he goes, all eyes are on the lamb, on the lamb of God. He was inspected and found to be without sin, that he might take away the sin of the world. He became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Awesome. Let me say this. So those are the two things I think are behind this fear, sin management, trying to get people to modify their behavior through fear. And then also there's this nagging, fleshly, natural, prideful thinking that, yeah, I kind of like this because it kind of makes my flesh feel good that I'm going to get paid for some of this stuff. And that's why it, it survives. But the truth is like a fire and it sets people free. Um, notice this, saints. Book of Revelation, the book of Revelation we know is a book that pulls back the veil and shows us things in the other side, in the other unseen realm, awesome realities that are not seen. Some to come, some already happened. Notice this, there's not a single scene. There's no scene in the book of Revelation of a judgment seat of Christ for believers' works. There's no scene. It's not there. There is no scene, there is no picture, there's no example, there's nothing in the book of Revelation that says that the believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged for the works. Not a single scene. What you do have is a scene of two resurrections. Two resurrections. The first resurrection and the second resurrection. And the scripture talks about the first resurrection being those who are in Christ, the believers. Blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection for those who are the ones who have already passed through death and into life in Christ. And they shall reign with Christ, the scripture says, forever and ever. The second second resurrection has to do with those who did not receive Christ. And they are in Sheol to this day, the scripture says, awaiting this judgment. And Revelation says, and Sheol shall give up her dead. Sheol shall give up her dead. They never received him. And the books will be opened, the scripture says. This is the second resurrection. And the books will be opened. And the book, the Lamb's book of life will be opened, the scripture says in Revelation, and their name will not be found. And if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, notice that in that Lamb's book of life, there is no record of any works. Just a name. Just a name. No score. No score. No report card in in that book. Just a name. Just a name. Remember, the disciples were so excited the demons were subject to, to them in the Lord's name. And the Lord says, don't be excited that the demons are subject to you in my name. Be excited that your name, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. When they open that book on the second resurrection and their name is not found, the scripture says, and then, they, then the other books are opened. Those are the other books that talk about giving an account of everything you do, every idle word, every thought, everything. 
Those books are opened, and they're all judged according to their works. And none, none are righteous enough. Of course, we know that. And the scripture says they all find their destiny in the lake of fire because their name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. But there's no picture, no picture of the believers being judged by God for their works. It's not there. What is there is a picture of a bride. Behold, I show you the Lamb's wife. A bride. There is a marriage feast. There is a celebration. All those things are in the book of Revelation. But no judgment of this bride. No judgment of this bride. Tell you something else. And all the parables of Jesus, all the parables that he taught, when he explained the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, all the parables... There's not a single, single parable that speaks of the believer standing before God being judged for their works. Not a single one. Not a single one. There's two that kind of like maybe, maybe, come, maybe not even come close, but maybe you might consider. One is the parable about the sheep and the goats. We all stand before God and he'll divide the people between sheep and goats. Notice it's not a judgment of the sheep. To inspect the sheep. It's a judgment of who you are. Are you a goat? Meaning you never believed and you're not born again. Or are you a sheep and you believed and you're born again? So even in that parable, it's not a matter of judging the sheep. It's a matter of judging the human race. For we all shall stand before God. That's the scripture. That's true. We all shall give an account of our life before God. And that's why Paul says to believe So you don't have to give an account of your sins because he took our sins for us. We look at that in a second, in chapter 5. So in that parable, there's no no indication that he's he's examining the sheep. There's another parable that seems to maybe come close, but it actually affirms what we're saying, and that is the parable of the talents. You got a, a brother who gets 10 talents and a brother who gets five talents, and you have one who gets one talent. And Jesus tells this story, and he says, the guy who had 10 talents went and invested the money. Talents is really a picture of money. Um, and he came back with 10 more talents and, and his master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, enter into the joy of your Lord. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Then the guy with five talents comes back with five more talents. And this is so cool. When you read the gospels, read this parable, Jesus says the exact same words to the one who had five talents. Exact same words on purpose. I mean, to the letter. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many. I mean, exactly. So it's not a matter, you know, how much or it's a matter that they received. And when they received, they bore fruit. Some will bear more fruit than others, depending on our faith and, you know, life circumstances, but and our ability to, to grow in faith our choices and so forth, but he loves us all. Now, the third guy, the one talent, the scripture says he came back with nothing and he was thrown into outer darkness with gnashing teeth. That's not, that's not the Christian. That's obviously not the judgment seat of Christ where you don't get a reward. I mean, he's thrown into outer darkness with gnashing teeth. He had nothing to show. What is that a picture of? That's just a picture of someone who has been given revelation of this gospel and didn't receive it. They buried it. They just said, nah, that's not for me. Or, nah, I like the praise of men more than the praise of God. Or, nah, I've got my position in the church and I don't want to rock the boat. So, nah, whatever it is. Or in the synagogue, you know, many of the Jews did not believe because they didn't want to lose their position in the synagogue, the scripture says. Same thing goes, is going on today in the Gentile church. 
There's unbelievers in places of authority in churches that are not even believers. They're not even born of the Spirit. And they, won't, they fight against this gospel of grace because it destroys their power to control and, and they don't want to lose their position in the church. They're out there. Jude says there are men who have crept in unaware, unaware, you know, among us who fight this gospel of grace. But anyway, so that, there's that parable of the sheep and the goats and the parable of the talents. Not even close. So there's no parable that talks about this. There's nothing in the book of Revelation that has a picture of any close to this. So what is, where are we getting this? Well, there's only tw- two times in the entire Bible, two times is the judgment seat of Christ referred to as a phrase, the judgment seat of Christ. Once in Romans 14, you might want to take a look at that later, Romans 14. Romans 14, he says, Paul simply says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In the context of what Paul is saying there, he's at the end of his Roman treatise on the Christian faith. He's at the end of his letter. He's he's tying up loose ends and he's basically addressing an issue that was in the body of Christ at the time. And the issue was they were judging other believers and saying they're not really a believer because of such and such. They were not receiving their brother because they were saying, no, no, he, he can't be a believer because he doesn't honor the Sabbath day. Or he can't be a believer because he drinks wine. So in Romans 14... Paul addresses that, and he goes, look, one, one man drinks wine, one man doesn't. One man eats meat, doesn't. One man has, honors one day above the other days. One man honors all, day, all days the same. They do it as unto the Lord. He goes, receive your brother. Don't judge your brother. Don't judge your brother as being an unbeliever because outwardly you feel like that can't be a believer because of the way he dresses or she dresses or what they do. And he goes, stop that. He goes, stop that. Stop judging one another. We're all going to stand before God. It's going to be clearly seen who's a believer, who's not a believer. That's what that verse is talking about. It's not talking about a judgment of believers for works and rewards. It's talking about simply telling the church, stop judging your brother and considering them an unbeliever just because you don't agree with some things that are physically in your eye, you're visibly you're seeing in their life. Because God is at work in all of us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's manifesting his life through us. Gradually, some people might be further along than others in their maturity in Christ. So Paul is saying, stop doing that. The Lord knows those who are his, the scripture says. The Lord knows those who are his, and it'll be clearly seen when we're standing there, who's a sheep, who's a goat, because the Lord will make it manifest. So Paul says, stop judging. The wheat and the tares are to grow together. Do not try to pick up the tares. Do not try to pick out the tares. Jesus said, don't do that because you'll end up hurting the wheat. Let them grow side by side. He said, don't worry about it. It's not your job. It's not your job to judge somebody to see if they're a believer or not believer. It's not our job. Our job is to feed the sheep, to spread seeds, to encourage the believer and let the chips fall where they may. And those that have fertile ground, those who are in, are in him shall, will receive it and grow. And those who are not of him will either become a believer or reject it. And that is up to God. So we let it go. We let it go. We let it go. And let the wheat and the tare grow together. In the end, Jesus said, at the end of time, the angels shall separate the wheat and the tare, the sheep and the goats. Once again, not a picture of any believer standing before God being judged for their works. Not there. Not there. Not there. Not there in Revelation. Not there in the parables. Not there. So, Two places, judgment seat of Christ is referred to. Romans 14, we just talked about that. Now, the other place is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says we should all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Got to go by this real fast, but chapter 5, judgment seat of Christ. Let me summarize real quick. Is is Paul telling the 
or write, he's writing to the Corinthians. But he's saying that everybody's going to stand before God one day. And that's what we just said, you know, a minute ago. Everybody's going to stand before God one day. And then he says, knowing the terror of the Lord. King James says terror. Other translation says fear. In the Greek, it actually means terror. It means, in the Greek, it means something very, very scary. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Persuade men about what? Now, it's interesting and odd that if this passage is talking about rewards, you would think the word reward would appear at least once. It does not appear. The word reward does not appear in this passage in this entire chapter, nor in the chapter before it, nor in the chapter after it. It's, it's not there. It's not, in the, it's not in the mind of the apostle. He's not talking about rewards. He's talking about the fact that we all are going to stand before God. Therefore, he is on earth persuading men to do what? To receive Christ. And later in that same chapter, he says, For the Spirit of Christ is in me, beseeching men to be reconciled to God. For God has already reconciled himself to men. For God was in Christ. The same chapter, God was in Christ, reconciling the whole world unto himself, not counting their sins against them, not counting what they did in their body, whether it be good or whether it be bad, against them. For even our good is as filthy rags before God. Not counting it, not considering what we've done, what we've done at all. For the next verse after that, when he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The next verse says, for we, we have considered this, that if one man died for all, then all died. What's he talking about? If one man died for all, then all died. I mean, he's referring to judgment here because the whole scene is about the world standing before God in judgment. He goes, and we have determined that if one died for all, then all died. All died in judgment. Therefore, the judgment is passed for the world if they'll just believe, is what he's saying. If they'll just receive, or if any man be in Christ, is a new creation. It's a whole new thing. The whole world has been rewired by God. See? You see it? You see it? That whole chapter, and I don't have time right now to go through the verse by verse, but maybe next time we'll do that. But look at that closely. The whole chapter is not talking about a believer standing before God to be judged for their works for rewards. Isn't it odd that the word reward does not appear in the entire passage? Isn't it odd that the reference to fear and terror at this judgment. Because all those who teach this doctrine clearly say, no, 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 you're not, it's not a, a time of terror or fear because you're going to be saved. You, it's, it's about, you know, rewards. No. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Persuade men to do what? To be more fruitful? To have more good works so they have more rewards? No, he's not talking about that at all. Persuade men that if one died for all, then all died. We beseech men be reconciled to God for God has reconciled you to him. That's what he's talking about. In that chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's not talking about a judgment for the believer for works. He's talking about a judgment that all men will stand before God and they will be determined, it will be clearly determined that time whether they're a sheep or whether they're a goat. Therefore, knowing this, we persuade men because you do not want to stand in the presence of God in your own righteousness. It is a terrible, fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you're there in your own righteousness, having rejected his son, having rejected the work of his son. Oh my God. What arrogance, what self-righteousness, what, what pity, what pity Paul has on those who reject this awesome grace, this awesome gift of the Son, who does despite to the Spirit of grace, who tramples underfoot the blood of the Son of God. That's what he's talking about. Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, it's so clear. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 He's talking about a totally different thing. He is talking about believers getting rewards and getting, you know, um, blessings and rewards for their fruitfulness. 
He is talking about that. And that's why he uses the word reward there. It makes sense. Set 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But notice the word judgment does not appear. Because he's not talking about judgment. He's talking about rewards. So in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, men teach us that that's talking about rewards. But the word reward does not appear. And in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, men say that's talking about judgment. But the word judgment does not appear. But the word reward does. Think it through, saints. Think it through. Read it for yourself. Search these things to see if they be so. Be like the Bereans. Search the Scriptures. Don't let a man teach you something that is contrary to the Scripture. See what the Scripture really is saying. So what is it 1 Corinthians 3 saying? 1 Corinthians 3, say, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is saying, that chapter is talking about, be careful how you build as a believer Once we become a believer, the foundation is Jesus himself. But we can build on that foundation as we grow, as we mature. And we build on other people's foundations, too, by what we teach. Because in in that chapter, he's talking about teachers, too. Teachers who teach wood, hay, and stubble are are not helping people. Teachers who teach fear, motivation, behavior modification, sin management are not helping people. They'll, they'll still be saved, Paul says in that chapter. Their believer, their foundation is Jesus, but their life might end up in ruin because they've put their hope in a man or in law or in flesh or in church or in religion. And we see it every day. I see it all the time. I see people that have, have, have attached themselves. They are Christians. They're born again. Their foundation is Christ himself. But they have attached themselves to either a church, organization, or a man. And that man falls into sin and they're wrecked. Or they attach themselves to a teaching that promotes uh, this, this uh, works thing that, you know, that... Uh, uh, you know, that if I do this, if I do this and obey, you know, God's going to reward me. And, you know, it's all about the reward and they're focused on the reward. And then it doesn't come, their life, they end, up, they end up in all kinds of tragedy and they wonder, where's God? You know, I've done all this for you. Why does, you know, why? I've, I've worked so hard for you. I see it all the time. I've worked so hard for you. Why did my son get killed in this car accident? I worked so hard. Why, why would God let this happen? Why would my, my house be destroyed in a hurricane? Why, 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 why? And they, you know, they're still a believer, but they just kind of check out. I'm no, don't go to church anymore. Just, you know, wood, hay, and stubble. So what is the fire, the fire referring to in this first chapter 3? It is not a judgment of God. That's what they do. They try to connect those, the word fire and judgment. What is this fire that burns up the wood, hay, and stubble, but they, but they cannot burn the gold and silver and precious jewels, which is rocks that can't, the fire can't hurt, just makes them shine brighter. What is, what, is the, what is this fire? The fire, contrary to what is being taught right now, it's not like, you know, you stand before God and you're like the cartoon character where the fire blows you up and you're like the smoke, smoky, all black and smoke going up with, you know, like a crispy critter. Okay, I'm saved, but I barely made it. You know, like, God, that was a waste of life. All my, all my life burned up. At least I'm saved. No, that's not it at all. What it is, is the fire refers to the fires of life. This life. Peter says this, the test of your faith is like going through the fire in this life. Peter says, be not, be not amazed by the fiery trial don't consider it, consider it a strange thing, the fiery trial that you have in this life because you belong to him and not to this world. The persecution, the rejection of this world, the fire is what 
It's the wind and the rain that falls on both houses in Jesus' parable. The wind and the rain will fall on both houses. The fire will fall on all of us in this world. The wind, the rain, the, the trials. It'll be, oh no, that's what the fire is talking about living on this earth. And if we are building with wood and hay and stubble, then the big tragedy that, comes, that, may, that may come in our life because we live in a fallen world and not because of a God who's doing it to us, but because we live in a fallen world and there are enemies and there are devils that hate God and hate you. If we build on law and flesh and religion, we'll find our, our so-called fruit that we're having to pump up and keep going all the time collapse and we'll wonder why. That's what that's talking about. And that's why Paul says the foundation, the, the, the structure must match the fabric of the foundation. The foundation is spiritual. It's Christ. And the structure must also be spiritual. Spiritual. So that when the fires come, you'll say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him because I know he didn't do this. There's an enemy. God is with me. Who can be against me? Nothing shall separate me from the love of God. And you'll be, fire, you'll be more on fire than ever because you're building with gold and silver and precious jewels, not attaching yourself, not attaching yourself to men or teachings or self-righteous thinking or law or religion or organizations of men, but attaching yourself to the Lord Himself. Your life, for Christ is my life. And nothing, nothing can shatter that. That's building with gold and silver and precious jewels. And that one shall receive a reward because he is also explaining this to others and they too. For you shall shine, Daniel says, as the stars of heaven. You who have insight shall shine as the stars of heaven as you teach others about this righteousness, which is by faith. And God is glorified. God is glorified. So when you get a chance, take a look at that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that chapter. Compare it with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. See, it's talking about two different things. And maybe one day we'll look at it again verse by verse because we don't have time today. But I want to give you that background, give you the summaries, talk about Revelation, talk about the parables. So you see the, the thrust of the evidence. The thrust of the evidence. It's so clear from Scripture. Don't let man take a little phrase from one chapter and disregard the whole book and disregard the gospel. Remove the fly from the ointment and anoint your head with oil and rejoice that what he did, he did it right, he did it good, he did it completely, and he did it forever. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the Word of God as a sword that cuts our bondages and cuts through the traditions of men. Lord, I pray that this would bear much fruit on the internet and in this body of believers. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray that we would be bold and not be afraid to preach Christ and to boast in Him. We boast in Christ. Thank you, Father, that we can go boldly to a throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. Amen.